Good morning, Harvest. Good morning. Wow. It's not expecting that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, would any of you be okay if I just closed some prayer and we went back into worship? Um, I, I tell you what, this is something that I've always loved about our church and um, the vertical model of ministry of what Harvest is, is because uh, little did you know, maybe if you were sitting here thinking like, good, we're finally through the worship so we can get to the sermon. That's not what any of us think. <laughs> we preach so that you worship better. We sit under the authority of God's word so that we worship better. It's about the worship because at the end of the day, what I'm doing right here when we get to heaven, I'm out of a job. But we will never cease to praise the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that's what I love about the word of God As we go into God's word right now. If you don't have God's word in your hand, we've got ushers walking the aisle right now. Raise your hand. We want to make sure that you have a copy of God's word in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, keep this. This is our gift to you uh, uh, that you can use and read regularly. And uh, like I said, that's one of the things I love most about the word of God is how how it has authority, how it has boldness and um, confidence as we read it is interesting. When we read God's word, it actually is reading us like a skilled surgeon with a scalpel in his hand, cutting out the cancer in our lives. And did you know what's interesting about surgeons? Surgeons have to be By definition, they have to be confident in what they're doing, right? No one wants an unconfident surgeon who walks into the room with the consult and is like, I don't know about this, but here we go. Like, no one wants that. I want a little known fact about me. I've actually had quite a few surgeries. And uh, on one occasion, I was in the consult, and I will spare you the details, but I don't even know what the surgeon said. I couldn't even look at him in the eye because this was happening the whole time as he was talking to me. He had an uncontrollable shake in his hand. As in, he couldn't control this. And he was about to do surgery on me. Now listen, praise God, I'm here, I'm alive. It was fine, it was successful, but I was nervous, right? I did not have confidence in that surgeon, though it was fine. But that's not the word of God, isn't it? We can have confidence in God's word because God's word is a surgeon that has confidence and boldness. It tells you what you need to know without apology and with authority. All of God's word is this way. And sometimes I worry about how people think about God's word in the church, like as if it's just a handbook to help you out in life. No, it's much more than that. And I truly believe that if you change your perspective on what God's word is, even as we dive into it this morning, God's word will drastically change your life. So turn with me to John 5. We're going to start at verse 18 today. John 5, verse 18. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you this question. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're saved? Notice I didn't ask you, how does someone get saved? I'm asking, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know? Is it possible to have assurance? Is it possible to know that you know that you know that you're saved? Have you ever struggled with this question in life? Do you ever get nervous when you think about this? Maybe you're getting nervous now as I'm bringing this question up. My goal today is that if you're a believer in Jesus, that you would be able to leave here with confidence and assurance of your salvation. And you know what? It all comes down to lordship. Do you believe that Jesus is your savior, that he died on the cross for you? Praise God. But have you received him as Lord over your life? And that's the big question this morning. What does it mean to receive Jesus? 
What does it mean to receive Jesus? What Jesus is about to do in this passage is drop a hammer on the religious elite, namely the Pharisees, who are actually seeking to kill him because, get this, we heard about it last week, Pastor Dave preached on it, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisee, he, he gets done healing this guy who's a cripple, and, and the Pharisees show up, they're like, no, 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 no. Please tell me, Jesus, you didn't do this today. Any other day, please not today. I can't believe you did that. Nope, you know, we, there is no healing on the Sabbath. But even more than that, they wanted to kill him and silence him because of an even bigger claim. Let's pick up in verse 18. So John 5, verse 18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and these guys who, to the average public, uh, uh, they would see them walking down the road, and they would avoid them. They would be scared of them because of their prestige and their piousness. They would be the ones to address you. You would never address the Pharisees, and, and yet what does Jesus do? Jesus is about to get all up in their business and humiliate them by jabbing their point of pride, which is their understanding of the law and prophets. What Jesus is going to do in this passage, we're going to see this, he's going to really make the Pharisees look dumb. Later in this passage, it even says in verse 43, uh, Jesus says, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. So he's building this argument through this passage on what it means to receive him and how the Pharisees and the religious elite of their time completely and utterly missed the point of all of the Torah, which is what they have memorized, which is what they have built their entire system and protocols on, and it's staring them right in the face. Have you ever had that happen to you where maybe you become so obsessed with something that you actually miss it when it's standing right in front of you or staring you in the face? This happened to me one time. In 2003, I had the opportunity to go to the National Association of Music Merchants Conference. It happens in, at that time, it happened in Nashville. And basically what this is, it's a mecca for anybody who's nerding out in a musical instrument. For me, it was drums. And all of these drum companies had their booths set up and they had all of their new drum sets, the new models of these drum sets. They were all set up and everything was ready to go and you could just go to any of them and play them. And it, I mean, it was heaven. And at the time, I was obsessed. I still love drums, but back then, I was obsessed with drums and drummers and everything about drums and my own drumming and learning drums and everything. And so here I was at one of these booths. I don't remember which booth it was, but I had a drum set there. I had a couple of them side by side, and I sit down at one. I start playing and you know, showing my chops because people walk by, and you want people to see what you're doing. And next thing I know, this guy sits next to me on the drum set next to me, and he starts playing along. And you know, I'm like, man, he's really digging what I'm doing. Like, he really thinks I'm really good. And so I'm, we're drumming, then we're trading fours, which means we're doing drum solos back and forth to each other and, like, passing the ball back and forth. And he's engaging with me. He's, like, setting me up for these little uh, four-bar solos. And next thing I know, there's, like, 150 people standing around us. And I'm like, man, people really think I'm awesome. And um, we get, I get kind of to a tipping point where I'm like, okay, I'm bored about how good I am. And so I, you know, I, I get up, I walk away and I walk through the crowd and, you know, thanks, you know, and some guy pulls me aside. He's like, do you know who that was? In that moment, I realized they weren't there for me. (laughs) And I'm like, no, who was that? He's like, Bernard Pretty Purdy, the Purdy Shuffle. Well, someone, someone knows. Uh, the most recorded drummer of all time, the drummer on Aretha Franklin's highest selling gospel album of all time, right next to me, engaging with me. 
playing drums next to me and I completely missed it. That's the argument that Jesus is building here in this passage. My word today is that the truth that there are many people in the same boat as the Pharisees who may know all of the stories, who may know everything there is to know about the Old Testament and the scriptures, uh, but do not know Jesus because they have not received him as Lord. There's a very sobering passage in Matthew 7 that draws this out even more. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart me, you workers of lawlessness. So it begs the question again, what does it mean to receive Jesus? How can we have assurance that we have received him? Here's the first thing this morning. We need to see Jesus rightly. We need to see Jesus rightly. Pick up in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does also, likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So how do we see Jesus rightly? There's two things. The first thing is we need to recognize that Jesus and the Father are the same. Jesus is making a very clear statement that he is God. He and the Father are one. They are unified in action. Whatever the will of the Father is, that is the will of the Son. They do the same thing. They have the same mission. They have the same purpose. Jesus is God, period. Fast forward to chapter 14, and you have this exchange between the disciples and Jesus, and Philip says, Jesus, just show us the Father. That will be enough. And what does Jesus say? He says, you've been with me for so long, Philip, and, and yet you have not known me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know, this is the thing that actually separates false religions that claim to believe in Jesus from true Christianity. I remember having a couple of guys show up at my door about 11 years ago at my house wearing the white shirts with the black ties and the name tags. Maybe you've had this happen to you. I remember them, I opened the door, I was like, hi, how can I help you? And they said, well, you know, we have a question for you. Do you believe in the Bible? I'm like, well, yes, I do. And they're like, great, we do too. And they asked me, do you believe in Abraham? I'm like, well, yes, we do too. They said, do you believe in Jesus? I'm like, yes, I do believe in Jesus. They said, we do too. And I'm like, hold on. Do you believe that Jesus is God? And it was crickets. They're like, well, I, um, uh, I mean, we, uh, we, we, weren't, we didn't really want to talk about that. Um, we, uh, I mean, no, we don't, we don't really believe in that. But no, can we talk with, I'm like, listen, the entire gospel hinges on the fact that Jesus is God. That's the only way the gospel works. They weren't really interested in listening to me beyond that. They're like, okay, well, we, we got to get going. <laughs> there are many false religions out there that will claim that they believe in Jesus, yet they do not believe him as God. And because of that, they can have no assurance that of their salvation because now they are responsible of having to bridge that gap and build a bridge of that gap between their sinfulness and God's holiness. And they never know for certain if they've achieved it. The gospel is hinged on the divinity of Jesus because of our sin, because of our sinful state. There's simply no way to regain right standing before the Father apart from an act of the will by him. 
The entirety of the Old Testament and the Torah and the law and the prophets build the foundation for this Messiah and the redemption that he brings. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament points to the reality of what Hebrews 9 says, that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus is the spotless, perfect lamb of God, God himself who takes away the sin of the world. Only God could sacrifice himself in order to bridge that gap between sinful man of his, and, and God's holiness. And he did that because of his love and because of his grace. You want assurance that you've received Jesus? We need to recognize and let that reality sink in that Jesus is God himself who reached down to save us because he knew that we would never be able to reach up and save ourselves. And because he's done for that for us, we need to recognize a second thing of how we see Jesus rightly. We need to understand that Jesus has been given all authority, all authority. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as, the fa- just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. A couple things that I want to see here in this passage. First is that this authority has been given to Jesus, all of it. It's been given to Jesus by the Father. What this means is that, like this passage says, Jesus, not the Father, is the one who will ultimately judge someday. He is the one who will ultimately condemn on that day of judgment. And isn't that interesting? That's not typically how I think most people would view Jesus. I think if you were to ask most people, hey, how do you view uh, God? Like, if you were to think about God, what do you think about? Like, what do you think he's like? In other words, what do you think of the Father? And I think your average person is like, oh, he's the, the big guy with the beard upstairs, probably with the scowl on his face looking down at us with disdain. And then you'd ask the same person, well, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, he's different. Jesus is like, I just imagine he's like there with open arms. He's playing with kids and like holding a sheep, right? There are so many fluffy views about who Jesus is. And though, yes, he is welcoming. He is loving. He does receive us with open arms. We also need to understand that that's only the partial truth of who Jesus is. Many would recognize Jesus as their good shepherd and savior, but you cannot separate the fact that he is also Lord. The buck stops with Jesus, and he ultimately is the final judge, and all authority has been given to him. You cannot separate the saviorship of Jesus from the lordship of Jesus. You cannot separate the love of Jesus from the justice of Jesus. You cannot separate the grace of Jesus from the judgment of Jesus. And you cannot separate the truth that Jesus saves, but that he also will condemn. All authority is given to the Son. And this is a great thing because of the gospel. Notice what it says here. Jesus says, truly, truly. How many times does he say truly, truly in this passage? Does Jesus have a stutter? No. When Jesus says truly, truly, it's like what we do here. It's like, hey, look up here. Look up here. See what I did there? I saw some of you were like, oh, okay. 
This is what happens when Jesus is like, I am about to tell you something that is vitally important. And what does he say? He says, if you get one thing right, if you get one thing out of what I say, get this because it is truer than true. Jesus is the ultimate judge. But if you believe him as your savior and receive him as Lord, guess what? You won't sit under his judgment. Why? Because you have been paid for by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Before believing in Jesus, you were dead because of our sin, but Jesus has made you alive. He says, truly, truly, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus in this passage is not only the final and ultimate judge, but he is the giver of life. And when we receive life in Jesus, it's as Galatians 2.20 says. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see what it says? The way that this relationship with Jesus works is not only receiving him as Savior, but also as Lord. He is the one that is now in control of everything in my life, who has all authority in my life. So what does that mean? Back to that original question. How do we receive Jesus? What does this mean to receive Jesus? We have to see him rightly, like we just talked about. But secondly, we need to submit to this authority. We need to submit to Jesus' authority Submission is such an important thing in the life of a believer because not only is it a practical way in which we trust the Lord's control of, over the authorities in our lives in this world, but also it is the means by which the lordship of Jesus is put on display in our lives. Submission to Jesus' authority is the litmus test on whether or not our faith is genuine. Jesus is the giver of life, and that life is lived by faith in the Son of God who, through his Spirit, lives in us. We say often here that a faith that hasn't changed you has not saved you. And why do we say that? Because if you have the Spirit of God living in you, your life would be defined by submission to Christ's authority who, has been, who gave us his Spirit to effectuate and empower that calling in our lives to help us walk this path of what it means to have Jesus as your Lord. To say that you believe in Jesus but look no different than the world is just like that old movie, Weekend at Bernie's. Now listen, this is not a plug for that movie. It's a terrible movie. But the whole concept behind that movie, the whole premise is that there's these two guys that went to go visit their buddy Bernie and he had, he's dead. They show up, he's dead. And so they're like, well, we're throwing a big party and so we need to pretend like Bernie is alive. So they manipulate his corpse throughout the whole movie and pretend like he's alive. The idea that you would have said a prayer, you walked an aisle and an emotional experience without a life that is now characterized and marked by submission to Jesus as Lord in your life is no different than being a dead man walking. Sadly, there are many Bernies walking around the church today. And please hear me. I am not saying that what you do or how you live saves you. It doesn't. This is a chicken and an egg type of argument here. What I'm saying is that if you believe that someone died for you, it should rightly well up in you this desire to honor that man. It's a natural logical progression that that person's fame would be spread by you because without him, you would be dead. But with him, you now have life. And that life should be radiating through you to the point where you are going to be spreading the fame of Jesus Christ because of what he's done in you. So what does it mean? I want to go through the rest of this passage. and I want to pull from the text on what it means to have a submissive heart that has Jesus on the throne. 
And remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and so some, I'm going to blast through a lot of Scripture here, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out the practical way of what we can walk away from the Scriptural and how we ha- have a submissive heart to Jesus, knowing that some of the things and the practical things that I'm going to pull out are actually the opposite of what Jesus is saying the Pharisees are doing. You'll see what I mean in a second. So let's dive in. Um, I have five characteristics of a submissive heart that has Jesus on the throne. Here's the first one. A submissive heart has an eagerness to point others to the truth. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he bore witness to the truth. Not that, he, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what we see here is that John, this is John the Baptist that Jesus is referring to, pointed others to Jesus as the Messiah. And if you recall, John the Baptist didn't really have a lot of issue with the Pharisees early on. They didn't hold a lot of issue with him. And and that's why Jesus said that for a while he was a burning and shining lamp that they were willing to rejoice in for a while in his light. But remember when the Pharisees' tone changed about John the Baptist? It was when John the Baptist, who was known as the voice of one crying in the desert, preparing the way of the Lord, actually recognized Jesus as Lord, actually recognized him as Messiah, and started turning people away from himself and bringing people toward Jesus and saying, don't follow me, follow him, he's the Messiah, he's Lord, he is God. In fact, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John said to the public as Jesus approached him for his baptism. John's witness was an eagerness to point others away from who he was and toward who Jesus is. And that that's, should be our example. He should be an example to us to do the same thing. If you contrast John the Baptist with the Pharisees, what you see in John the Baptist is that he bore witness about Jesus and the Pharisees bore offense to Jesus. And so my question to you today is, are you bearing witness about Jesus in your life? Does your life just model the fact that you have been bought with the price, you are, uh, you are given the spirit of God and you live in a way that, uh, that models that? Or do you bear an offense to Jesus? And I don't talk about him, I talk about him at church and that's it. Now obviously you're in church, by all externals you'd probably pass off as someone who loves the Lord, but when was the last time the gospel or what we believed exited our mouths in regular conversation around the drinking fountain at work or in our schools? When was the last time that your heart broke for the ones that you love who are in your sphere of influence that are hopeless apart from Jesus Christ? One of the things that I love is that it's actually the authority of Christ as we submit to it that gives us the power to do this. In fact, it's the Great Commission in Matthew 28. You probably know this. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But do you know what it says right before that? It says, all authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of that, he says, therefore, go. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is reminding us that we can go in full confidence to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to our classmates, to our neighbors with the news of the gospel because Jesus is on the throne and he is over it all. He has all authority. 
Jesus called us to this. And if we submit to this authority, we submit to his authority, he gives us the same power that raised him from the dead to be alive in us, to empower us, to embolden us, to encourage us, to give us endurance through persecution and to share the greatest news of all time to the people that we know so desperately need it. Here's the thing, I know the rub. I know the brakes that kind of get pressed in our heart as we talk about this. And I think all of us would have a desire to want to share our faith with people. But it's like, ah, just, you know, I don't know if I have confidence in, in God's word enough in my own life to be able to do this. Well, that points to the second characteristic of a, characteristic of a submissive heart that has Jesus on the throne. A heart that has a love and pursuit of the word of God. A love and pursuit of the word of God. Let's pick up in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, Jesus says, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding you, in you. For you do not believe the one whom, whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Can you feel the tension yet in this exchange that Jesus is having with the Pharisees? Have you ever been in a situation where the tension in the room went from like zero to a billion in like a second? One time I was out to dinner with a large group of people. We were at this big long table and I was on one end of the table and on the other end of the table is what I would likely say was a brewing conflict. And it was a father and his son and the son, there was something in the candle and the son was taking his, uh, his straw wrapper and trying to you know, dig that thing out of the candle and the candle's lit. And so you have this uh, waiter walk by and say, hey, sir, can you get your son to stop playing in the candle? And the man is like, well, no, he's not playing in the candle. He's just trying, something fell in the candle. He's trying to get it out. And the waiter's like, listen, you don't need to lie to me. I'm not stupid. Just have him stop playing in the candles. The man was like, he's not playing in the candle. I just told you that. It's fine. And the, uh, the waiter is like, you don't need to raise your voice at me. And then the man's like, oh, I'm not raising my voice at you. This would be raising my voice at you in which the entire restaurant, just complete silence. Everyone's looking at us. And that's when I realized something was happening too. And then we got kicked out of the restaurant. <laughs> Jesus just did that. He just raised the temperature in that conversation with what he was saying to the Pharisees. He, he was poking at a tender spot in the ego of the Pharisees, basically saying, like, you pride yourself so greatly in how much you read the scriptures, and yet you don't even know what they say. Otherwise, you would have received me. He says, they do not have his word abiding in them. Can you imagine how much of a blow that would be against the Pharisees? He's saying, you missed the entire point. I'm standing right here. A submissive heart recognizes that God's word points to Jesus on every single page. A submissive heart recognizes that the word of God is food more than even food is. Scripture says in the Torah, which they would have known, it says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A submissive heart pursues the word of God for life because of what the apostle John tells us just a few chapters before this. In John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why do we pursue God's word and have an insatiable love for it? Because of what it just said, Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God, and when we pursue God's word, we build our relationship with Jesus because when we read God's word and spend time in God's word, it's like we are hanging out with Jesus because he is the word. Do you have a love and pursuit of God's word? If you do, it will lead to our third characteristic of a submissive heart that has Jesus on the throne. It's this. 
you would have a love for others as Jesus has. Verse 41, it says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus just raised the temperature again. Can you imagine, just imagine for a moment, if you were a bystander watching this exchange with Jesus and the Pharisees, and, and, and you know who the Pharisees are, and maybe you were someone who the Pharisees looked down on, or you had an ailment in your life that the Pharisees always told you was because of your sin, or you needed healing, and you were trying to get close to Jesus, but they're having this conversation and you're like, ah, oh, man, what's happening right now? And, but the Pharisees, oh, I've looked up to them for, for my entire life and I'm never gonna be able to reach what they say I'm supposed to be. And Jesus just said, they don't have the word of God abiding in them and they also now don't have the love of God in them. Can you imagine how freeing that would be? Because that door was just open to that person for life. How freeing is it for us as we hear this, that it isn't about how religious we are or how good we think we have to be or how close we have to follow what we see the, the law and the prophets say. Now, all of those things are important, but it's not about that. They miss the point, and Jesus is poking at that. We would have a love for others as Jesus has. Contrast Jesus' interaction with these same people. He talked to the despicable. He showed kindness and care for the incurables. He healed people's ailments. And again, the Pharisees would have said you had that ailment because of your sin or the sin of your parents. Listen, this is hard because do we have the same heart that Jesus has for the lost? Do we have the same heart for the people around us that we know are lost and hopeless. See, we live in a nation that bows to the idol of comfort and ease at seemingly no limitation. If Jesus looked at us and how we view others around us, what would he say? Would he say that you do not have the love of God within you? Later on, Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35 of how his disciples are marked in the world. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you would love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love and have love for one another. If we are to submit to Jesus' authority in our hearts, our hearts should share the same love that Jesus has. We should have the same heart that Jesus has for other people, willing to step into the mud of someone else's circumstance and support them, give counsel to them, pray with them, and maybe even give to them as you feel the Lord leading in your heart. So a heart that's submissive to Christ's authority has the same love that Jesus has for others, which leads us to our fourth characteristic. This is a heart that doesn't seek its own glory, a heart that doesn't seek its own glory. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you see how all these characteristics are building off of each other right now? It's the eagerness to point others to the truth and to point others to Jesus, to bear witness about Jesus that leads you to the necessity to have a love and insatiable pursuit of the source of truth, to grow in the word of God, which then leads you to love others as Jesus loves. And that's because we know who Jesus is and received him for life. And that life now is marked not by our own pride or our own glory, but rather rather to give glory to the only one who is worthy of glory. A submissive heart does not worry itself about what other people think about it. 
we worry so much about what other people think about us, don't we? We worry so much about how many followers we have on Instagram or how many likes we got on whatever post we posted on social media when all of that means nothing. A submissive heart realizes that, hey, newsflash, American Christian, it's not about you. Turn to your neighbor and say that. It's not about you. Some of the married couples in the room there, you said that in a little bit of a mean way. Now turn to your neighbor and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> I have sat in so many different counseling cases and people coming into my office throughout the years who wax on and on about how they have been mistreated, how much they have been misrepresented, how much they have been falsely accused, and how much they are sick of it. People don't appreciate them enough. They don't get what they feel like they deserve. And guess what? Those are miserable people. Do you know Why? because they are so concerned about themselves that they've lost their purpose. Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You may have been mistreated, you may have been misrepresented, you may have been falsely accused and all of those things hurt and I don't wanna minimize that hurt. And in fact, those things probably should not have happened to you and that's a terrible thing but I do wanna challenge us with this. Who has been more mistreated, more misrepresented, and more falsely accused than we will ever be? Jesus. And you know what it says when he did, uh, as he was being beaten and bruised and kicked and scorned and spit on and reviled, it says he opened not his mouth. Just think about that for a minute. He didn't have to do any of this. He wasn't obligated to do any of this. He chose to do this. He chose to do the will of his father to be the perfect and spotless sacrifice for us. And he did it without complaining and without grumbling and without kicking and screaming. He went to the cross and died the death that you and I deserved. And he did that because he loved us and he didn't want us to die because of our sin. He did not have to do this, and yet he did. And the one person who would have every reason to boast, who would have every reason to brag about himself, humbly laid his life down for the people that didn't deserve it. Do you believe this? Does that truth not change your heart? He is our Savior, and because of that, he is our Lord. And finally, notice this last characteristic that we see here. A submissive heart that has Jesus on the throne elevates him above all else. Jesus is elevated above all else. Let's finish up here in verse 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Pharisees, see, the Pharisees set their hope on Moses. They prided themselves in having the whole Torah memorized and praised themselves and how proud Moses would have been of them for keeping the law perfectly when standing before them was the very one that Moses was talking about, the very one that Moses was pointing to the entire time, and they rejected him. They refused to receive Jesus as the Messiah and they refused to receive him as Lord and they rejected him. Here's the point. Jesus is Lord. He is by definition elevated in power, stature, and might. Do you know him? And is he elevated in your life above all else? Jesus is not an accessory to your life. He is the source of your life. Jesus is not a compartment in your work week. He is the room by which the compartments of your life exist. 
Elevating Jesus above all else is like wearing glasses that have inscribed on them. Everything you see, everything you do, everything that you look at goes through the lens and the filter that someone died for me. Jesus died for me. Someone died for me so I will respect my boss this week. Someone died for me so I will not cheat on my test this week. Someone died for me so I will love my spouse as Christ loved the church this week. Someone died for me so I will have patience with my kids this week. Someone died for me so I will humble myself and confess my sin to my small group and have a transparent relationship with my small group members. Someone died for me so I will not gossip to my coworkers this week anymore. Someone died for me so I will not go to that website anymore. Someone died for me so I will be dead to that addiction in my life. Someone died for me so I will no longer live for myself but I will live for the Lord of hosts. Can't you see how this would change everything in our lives? Can't you see how your faith in Jesus as Savior demands that he also is your Lord? I want to finish with a passage of scripture that describes the magnitude of who Jesus is and all the more reason why his lordship in our lives is our joy and our purpose and the reason why we worship. It's Philippians 2. He, he talks basically everything Paul uses, the first handful of verses all the way through verse 8 about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and how we humble ourselves and how Christ, his example of humility, leads to what verse 9 says. It says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you bow your heads with me? If you've never received Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, I, I would love for you to do that this morning. If that's something you want to do, it's as simple as this. Recognize your need. Recognize that you are a sinner. Confess that sin to him, even right now in your heart, and believe that he died for you and gives you life because he defeated that sin for you on the cross when he rose from, a de from the dead on the third day. And allow that faith now to be what the Lord uses in your life to change you as you receive him as Lord over your life, turning away from the sins that you are running after, repenting of those things, doing a 180 in your life and running now toward Christ in newness of life because of the spirit. If that's you today, I would also ask that you would just come forward after the service and talk to one of the pastors or elders or their wives and just let them know what Jesus did in your heart today that we can walk alongside you and the body of Christ can rally around you in this church to help you now along in this path of Jesus' lordship in your life. Father, we do come before you with humility and knowing that you are a great and gracious and loving God. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you saved us, but also that you are our Lord. God, let us... Let us follow you with confidence and boldness, knowing that you saved us to life, that we can have life, and that life can be shown into this dark world, and that others may be able to see and believe, not because we're something, but because you're everything. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.